Hello, it's Kamal Ahmed here, and I'm here to tell you about Energized. The brand new podcast, Intelligent Squared, is launching in partnership with eBedrola. The climate crisis is the most pressing issue of our time. Temperatures are set to rise more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels in the next two decades, an increase that will cause irreversible damage to our planet. But is there still hope? If humans are to blame for climate change, then we must also provide the solutions. And that's where Energized comes in. Join me as I bring together experts and policymakers to delve deep into the key issues at the heart of the global drive towards net zero and the innovations that promise to accelerate the energy transition and transform the way we live. Just search Energized wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up on the program, an interview with a Grammy award-winning musician turned regenerative farmer, Andy Cato, CEO of Wild Farmed. This episode is an extra installment of Intelligence Squared this week, a conversation from our How to Lead a Sustainable Business podcast. Here's our host, Alana Weston, chairman of Selfridges Group, with more. Hello and welcome to How to Lead a Sustainable Business. I'm Alana Weston and I believe that sustainability will be the next big disruptor of my industry. It has to be placed at the heart of business strategy if we're to address the climate crisis and transition to an economic model that is regenerative and just. Complete systems change is needed for us to grapple with the enormous challenges that face our planet and the people who live on it. Business leaders are going to be required to completely rethink their business models and their measures of success. In this series, I want to focus on the leaders who are driving that change. Those who've looked at their industry and said, this doesn't make sense. There's got to be a better way. The latest IPCC report demonstrates what we all know. There is no time left for incremental progress. I want to know about the revolutionary ideas that are going to transform the way we think, what we value, and how we construct our business models. Throughout this series, I'm looking at six different sectors where my guests are at the forefront of that reinvention. This week, I'm joined by Andy Cato, co-founder of Wild Farmed. Andy is a Grammy-nominated musician one half of the incredible Groove Armada. In 2006, he read an article about the dire state of industrial food production, sold his music rights, and bought a farm in France. He spent the next decade trying to find a more restorative and sustainable way of growing food. During his time as a farmer in France, Andy was awarded the equivalent of a knighthood for his services to agriculture. Now back on British soil, Andy's on a mission to help other farmers adopt his system, putting soil health first 
and rewarding farmers for the quality of their crops rather than the quantity. With his partners, he's building a brand called Wild Farmed, which could transform our daily bread for good. Welcome to the podcast, Andy. Thank you very much. Thanks for the introduction. That's a keeper. <laughs> okay. So listen, so quite a lot has happened since you DJed up my 21st. Yeah, one or two things has happened since then. Crikey, that was a while ago, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. We've got a few, few miles on the clock since then. But can you tell us a bit of how you went from being one of the world's best-selling and best-loved dance acts to organic wheat farming? It's quite a shift, isn't it, by anyone's uh, criteria. But I mean, as you referenced there, uh, a tri tribute really to the power of journalism, then that uh, I did just pick up this article about what we might call industrial or chemical food production, whatever you want to call it, and, uh, and its consequences for, for us, the environment, and so on. And that just sent me down this rather spectacular rabbit hole, I suppose. Uh, in the first instance, it was a quest for self-sufficiency, my response uh, to this article, which ended with a brilliant line of, if you don't like the system, don't depend on it was to say, right, I'm going to start growing food for the family. And uh, there's a wonderful book by John Seymour called The Complete Guide to Self-Sufficiency. A very battered copy of that uh, was in my record box for quite a long time as I juggled this slightly strange double life of uh, trying to become self-sufficient while playing records here and there. I love that as an aha moment. And it, it certainly does talk about how communication is so important to driving systems change across you know, a wider audience. But tell me about the way you're approaching food production. How is it different to the way the current system works? Well, I mean, this has been a, a long and winding road. And my hand was forced, really, insofar as after doing some self-sufficient uh, vegetable production, I decided to take this, you know, I'm trying to find the right word for it, but I suppose mad is the only real <laughs> word that does it justice, leap, and sell my publishing rights to, to, to buy this farm in France. Uh, just because I wanted to become part of this group of people who were trying to find a, a new way forward. Uh, but what happened was is it went, uh, it went spectacularly wrong. I mean, the first few years were, were awful. And I was confronted with the, the reality of, of trying to remove the chemical inputs and continue to grow food on heavily degraded soil. And that didn't have a, a happy ending in the first instance. And actually, um, I was brought to the point of, of close to, to financial ruin, and we were going to have to try and bail out and get for the farm whatever we could get for it, uh, until I came across this book by uh, Albert Howard, which despite being 150 years old now, is, um, is probably the single best book on, on, on what we now call regenerative farming. It wasn't called that then, but uh, the, the principles were all identical. And his message was really simple, actually, that nature relies on a diversity of plants and it relies on a symbiosis between plants and animals. That fascinated me and we had another go with my incredibly supportive wife. We brought in cattle to the farm, we put lots of fields down to pasture. Trying to take those principles uh, of, of the power of a diversity of plants and animals and that relationship between them, the power of that sort of regenerate natural systems is well demonstrated. But how do you combine that with trying to get grains out of it as well? And so to, to answer your question about how does it differ, I suppose what we've created with our current food production system is something where uh, we, we wage war with nature. And for a while that went quite well in terms of output, but we're now paying the, 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 the price for that. And uh, to instead, how can we work with natural systems and just push them and tweak them so that we get out of those natural systems what we need.
And so from a business point of view, how does this affect the bottom line? I mean, there's less inputs or different kinds of inputs. Are they less costly? The reality is that we live in a world where the price of food is totally illusory. Uh, and it doesn't pay any of its bills. So it doesn't pay the the cost of environmental degradation. It doesn't pay the cost of all the topsoil that's being lost. It doesn't pay the cost of the public health disaster that's coming from the fact that this way of growing food creates empty calories, and that's manifesting itself in an epidemic of chronic disease. So the actual cost of our food is huge. It's a food production system that's completely based on fossil fuels, for its fertilizers and for all the various associated chemicals. And so it's highly vulnerable, as we've seen particularly pertinent now, but you know the price of fertilizer has increased tenfold uh, from where it was uh, a couple of years ago. So much has changed economically over the past couple of years that the spreadsheets that we once used to compare what we call a conventional, like a current farming system to, to our system, we've had to just rip them up and start again, you know, because everything has changed. But fundamentally, when you, you're working with natural biology and natural systems, the tendency of nature is towards abundance. So by bringing land back into this system, which combines all these different plant groups together with the crop that we want to harvest, we're on a path where our yields and our nutrient density is going to get greater and greater. Whereas what's happening in the existing system is it's a law of diminishing returns, even before the price shocks that we're, we're seeing now. I mean, this could be transformative, you know, but there is this sense that organic food is expensive. So how do we ensure that food remains affordable? Well, that's, that's yeah, it's, it's an excellent question. And I, I think that, well, the founders of the organic movement were very inspirational people. And in some senses, what's that that's become now has become really more a conversation about what's not in your food. So is it pesticide-free? Is it herbicide-free? And so on. And what's got a bit lost there is we need to talk about what is in our food and about the, the, all the, the, uh, the trace elements and micronutrients that come when you've got a living, functioning soil biology. So I think there's a whole conversation about labels and, and really understanding what this conversation is, just as, a, as, a, as an aside. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the, the price point, yeah, because we're having these conversations now. We're, our whole project is about making food for the high street. And so it's very complicated in that you've got to be competitive with a food price, which is a complete illusion. But you have to do that because a lot of people are struggling already. So you can't just say, well, this is not the true price of food. We've got to double it. Obviously, that's not reasonable. Mm. Over time, our yields will increase as opposed to current sort of chemical-based yields, which tend to decrease. So there'll be a meeting of that graph at some point. It's also about uh, making sure that the farms that are growing in this way are fully rewarded for all the different things they're doing because they're not just growing nutrient-dense food. I mean, really, they should be getting part of the NHS budget, the climate change budget, the biodiversity loss budget, and the, and the flooding protection budget. Uh, and they're all things that we're, that we're working on, you know, to, to make sure that the, the farmer can keep his per hectare price or her per hectare price uh, whilst the grain price can be brought to a point where we can be competitive with the market as it is. I mean, it's, it's a fantastic ambition and just bringing those three things together could be transformative for so many aspects of society. I'm pleased to say that I'm the proud new owner of an upland farm in Wales. 
And these are some of the conversations that I've been having with, with local farmers. And they feel really unsure about their future and the future of, of, of the subsidy in particular, and how they want to know how they can hold on to their culture, which is really linked with how they farm and how that shapes the yeah. landscape. It's not easy, but I think we're in a, a moment of huge potential. I do think it's a really exciting time to be in farming and there are huge obstacles to overcome, but I was about to use a phrase which I just hesitated to use there for obvious connotations, but I do think when you change the way you farm to being based on the reinstating of natural systems, you do take back control. I do hesitate to use that phrase for obvious reasons, but you do. Because at the moment, if you're a farmer, you have no control over your input price. You have no control over your sale price. I mean, it's an insane position. If it weren't for the fact that hope springs eternal, no one would farm under those conditions. You do it from passion because on an economic level, no other business could possibly function on that basis. It's absurd. So I think that by combining a return to natural systems where we, we, we de-risk it, so we take all those huge input costs out and reimagining the supply chain so there's a field-to-plate supply chain with, so you know what your sale price is up front, it actually could be a, a real source of regeneration, not just of the, of the soil and the ecosystems, but of farming itself and of the communities that it supports. I think that's a fantastic vision and something I certainly would share. And I'd take it one step further and wonder whether there's an opportunity for small farmers, you know, say 200, 300 acres to actually come together in some kind of cooperative that would make it, would give them more control over price and and also how they uh, share resources and communication and, and that kind of thing. Is that something that that you've explored? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I think I imagine the kind of farming that your your neighbours are doing is is pro- probably more livestock based than, uh, than than arable based. So, so there'd be so the resource sharing would, would take a slightly different form. But yeah, within the wild farm community, it's all about that. We can organise groups of growers that can pool equipment, so you get rid of the crazy capital costs involved in equipment, which does three days' work and spends the rest of the year in the shed. And it also means that you can potentially pool a, a wider area of land where by changing the stewardship of it, you're creating you know, increases in biodiversity, which are then much easier to uh, attract the, the value that they deserve. And then on the supply side, obviously, we're doing it through our flour and, 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 and bread and so on. But um, combining forces to, to, to service a group of restaurants or whatever it might be with, with 100% highly nutritious, traceable meat grass-fed and so on, and part of ecosystems which are being, you know, those opportunities are all out there, and that's a crucial part of our model. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. 
That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. And so tell me a little bit more about Wild Farmed, the brand. What makes you think that customers are ready to understand or even care about where they're wheat comes from if you look at uh, like the number of people who watch you know david attenborough's christmas broadcast or the number of people who think that climate change is the most important uh, problem uh, that we face and so on these are huge huge numbers of people the vast majority of whom are urban or semi-urban and who feel completely disempowered to do anything about it and actually explaining to people that soil is our point of agency and that every time you buy food you shape the future of the planet. And so there is actually this huge opportunity uh, to participate in becoming part of the solution rather than part of the problem. That bit of it is being incredibly well received. And we're also on, on, on because we're also working with schools. And uh, just before we came online, I was looking at some absolutely brilliant artwork that's come out of this, this primary school in East London where there's all these amazing people in, in the kitchen in the school who have sort of reimagined an education system that incorporates growing things and food and, 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 and all the, the wider education that comes out of that. But yeah, there's a, an instinctive, despite all our kind of digitalism, there's an instinctive pull towards the soil and food and these things. You know, they, they were, they've been part of our psyche for a lot longer than the, the smartphone, even though it might not always seem like that. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's absolutely right. And people are drawn to nature for all kinds of reasons, the mental health, for, um, for exercise, for all of, all, so many, it, it fits into so many of the challenges that, that we have today. I guess one of the things that we've, you know, we've seen is, is, is the rise of veganism, particularly in this country. And I wondered how you see the role of of animals in both in your system, but also in our dietary system as we go forward? Well, yeah, I mean, well, I was vegetarian for a very long time. Uh, I don't know if it was 20 years or 25 years, but it was a long time anyway. And that was kind of a based, a sort of very loose animal welfare-based um, vegetarianism. And then the point came when I read the Albert Howard book that I referred to which gave an incredibly persuasive argument about the symbiosis between plants and animals that grasses or, or pasture and, and herbivores, they evolve together and they need each other. And there's, and there's this whole exchange that goes on when they're hand in hand. And so uh, that led to getting livestock at the farm. Uh, and there comes the moment, because they were principally there for the soil, but it's a, it's a reproducing herd, there comes a moment where you have to take cow to the abattoir 
And, you know, for a 25-year vegetarian, taking a cow to the abattoir is a moment of deep in introspection. And I remember standing with that, with that cow at dusk, because you have to take it the night before. I went as late as possible to try and limit the stress it was going through, and I stood with it for a long while. And, and during that time, you ask yourself a lot of questions about whether what you're saying about this being essential is, is true or not. And, um, and, I, and I remain passionately convinced that it is. And I think a very good demonstration of that was when school children would come to the farm in France. And I'd say at the beginning, okay, who's vegetarian, who's vegan? And uh, towards the end, particularly, a lot of hands would go up. And I'd say, well, the most vegan thing you can eat is grass-fed beef, at which point there'd be uproar. And then we would go from there with some spades to the neighbor's farm, where he's an, uh, an organic farmer, just arable, would say, right, anyone who can find a worm has got free run on the pan au chocolat in the, in the farm bakery. <laughs> no one can find a worm. Uh, and okay, forget the worm. Anyone can find anything that moves. I mean, I'm talking about quite degraded soil here because so, it's a bit ahead of the curve down there, but no one can find anything that moves. And then we come back to the pastures at the farm and they're just humming with life mm. of, all, of all shapes and sizes. And so the point is, is that whilst managing herbivores through the abattoir is a difficult decision in terms of our overall relationship to other life forms and supporting an abundance of other life forms, I remain convinced that the animals that are playing this role are a, are a vital part of any kind of resilient farming system. But that does have to be completely differentiated from the 99.9% .9 of our current meat, which is a, a disaster in terms of not just animal welfare, but, but environmentally as well. Well, you make a fantastic case there and very, very thoughtful. I mean, moving on a little bit from farming, I mean, how do you, you've had this incredible career in music. How do you think being a creative person has meant that you maybe approach business a little differently? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not to be totally honest, I'm not sure that I've approached business particularly successfully insofar, <laughs> insofar as um, uh, most of my farming uh, was uh, a research and development process with a lot of hard knocks that was funded by DJ Nabitha. I mean, that's the, <laughs> that's the short version. Um, although towards the end of that process, we, we did end up um, creating this really nice community at the farm in France with, with the mill and the bakery. And we were employing eight people on 110 hectares, you know, which is, which is amazing, really, given that that would normally, on a conventional farm, employ 0.5 people, yeah. that sort of land area. But I do think that on the farming side, uh, I don't know if it's to do with being creative or not, uh, but I think coming in from the outside is very interesting and it made for all kinds of mistakes. And some of the things that I said to people at the beginning just make me wince even just half remembering them now as I'm speaking to you. But by, by saying, why do we do this and can't we do that, is uh, are questions which I think in these, these, these areas where there are huge sort of cultural weight and precedent, and precedent becomes truth. And, uh, and questioning those truths, I think, is a good thing. It's, it's got to be done. And, um, and I guess, you know, talking about diversity more generally, you know, the typical, the outsider, insider thing exists around boardroom tables that, you know, that I know. And how can we get, whether it's in farming or business, or how can we get a broader um, group of people involved? How can we make it 
more open for them? There's all kinds of challenges there. The, the, the first thing is that actually farmers should be the world's rock stars because they're the people who can turn this thing around for us. In fact, someone else was saying the other day that when we get to the point when the careers officer at school gets you in and says, uh, you know, hello, Samantha, these, these grades are, are really, really good. And they're almost good enough for you to consider being a farmer. You know, when we start having those conversations, we've got somewhere then. It's long-term stuff, isn't it? But you've got to start from there on the one hand, but you've also got to be realistic. The idea of buying farmland in the UK is utopian for most people. And so we've got to find ways where if we empower people at school and get them excited and change the culture around farming to be the pinnacle profession, which it should be, uh, then we have to back that up um, with with finding ways where it's accessible to people. Yeah. yeah. And then the barriers to entry do start to come down. But what gave you the courage to do it? I mean, you've, you've, you said it's been a mad thing to do. You've made a lot of mistakes. What was it that kept you going throughout? And, and what advice would you have for, for other people who are thinking about becoming a farmer or, or an entrepreneur? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think what kept me going at different stages were, like I remember very vividly when I first did a, a new kind of way of growing, which was to do with sort of rolling down this cover crop and sowing through the cover crop and so on. And when I went down and saw that that had worked and there were these lines of soybeans emerging from this rolled down cover crop, I mean, Apart from sort of getting married and, and the arrival of my children, I can't ever remember being happy, you know. So you do get these moments of, uh, of absolute euphoria. Uh, part of it, I suppose, is a pride thing that you get so far into something that you just think, I cannot have done all this and fail, which is not necessarily positive, but it gets you through some of the, yeah. some of the, some of the worst bits. You know, I've been lucky in that I've been able to keep my head above water during the real dark days uh, through through the uh, through the music, but it is it is a total passion, and I, and I find I, you know I consider myself enormously lucky that from the basically since your twenty first birthday party, you know there have been very difficult moments on, on enduring both careers, but fundamentally I've got up every morning to do something which I'm excited about. And that doesn't mean it's all rosy; it's definitely not all rosy, but that excitement is always there. I mean, I. I think that's so inspiring, and um, and I, I guess I remember you running for the Oxford Union when we were at university, and it was super focused on academics, our college, and not that engaged with student politics, I'd say. And I remember you started your speech saying, "The watchword for this college is apathy." <laughs> that's a, I'd forgotten that was quite an opening line. <laughs> it was it didn't it work was, though, did it? I didn't win. It stuck with me. It stuck with me. I mean, how do you think we can move? our generation forward from apathy to agency for the sake of the next generation? I think it's going to be a combination of informing people about this enormous potential that we have. 70% of the UK is farmland. It's re-engineered twice a year with our tractors and so on. What an enormous opportunity to completely transform our landscape and everything that, that flows from that. And what will drive that are people's food choices. So I think that's from a world where people uh, at all sort of levels of economic success seem to be striving for purpose. There seems to be a real lack of purpose across a whole strata, different strata of society. This is the ultimate purpose. This is about a livable future or not a livable future. 
you know, and really in a kind of sane world, we'd be approaching this as the sort of existential crisis as it is. And, and I think that I think that that would be a really positive thing for a lot of people because it gives you that cause. It gives you something to get hold of. Um, and so I think it will be a combination of trying to instill that sense of purpose. And also, I think it will be just economic yeah. realities. Yeah. Just the realities of the world in which we live mean that I don't see how we can not do this, really. I mean, there's, there's no real other course to take. I agree. And it's hugely empowering to think that every morning when you get up to have breakfast, you get to make a political statement or you get to, you get to eat purposefully. Those small choices that people make along the way can add up to something much bigger. And those with the wherewithal to do the, the, the bigger piece like you have by, by starting to farm in a new way, it can be transformative. Now for our quick fire round. Andy, what's your definition of sustainability? Are the resources that I'm using more abundant this year than they were last year? And is there such a thing as sustainable growth? I think nature is cyclical and anything linear is destined to fail. And what's most important in driving change? Is it customer demand, legislation or innovation? I think we know what we need to know. I think positive revolutions never tend to come from the top. So to apply what we know already, which is more than enough, we just need demand. So imagine you're a world leader. What are the first three things you do for the planet? I'm going to make myself UK leader because the world's too big to get my head around. So if I was, um, if I was UK leader, I would, first of all, sort out the taxation system to sort of restore the social contracts and replace inequality with, with opportunity. I would redesign the education program around food and gardening to create an education system that creates kind of wholeness and togetherness rather than separateness and individualism. And I would apply true cost accounting, so the actual price of food production, to our food staples and use the taxation from point one to subsidise the regenerative alternatives. And what's your call to action for listeners? Every time you buy food, you shape the future of the planet. And if you could reinvent one thing to halt climate change, what would it be? The best invention to halt climate change is, I'm looking at quite a lot of them right now, it's a leaf. And all we've got to do is put them in the ground and let them grow. Fantastic, Andy. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And thank you for sharing all of these thoughts with us. And your passion is palpable. And I can't wait to come and see your farm. Oh, I'd love to have you here. And uh, congratulations for remembering the opening line of my unsuccessful bid for whatever it was 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> okay. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do take a moment to subscribe and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. This lets us know what you think and helps others to find the show. This episode was brought to you by Selfridges Group and Intelligence Squared. The producer was Redzi Bernard with technical assistance from Mark Roberts. I'm Alana Weston, and this is How to Lead a Sustainable Business.
the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.